All right. Um, sounds like you have very exciting things. When I was a kid, I had these. We had these ceramic carol singers that my mom had painted in ceramics class. Um, that I love to like pretend that they were singing oh, like at Christmas time. So that was my favorite thing. Uh, anyways, um, I have the privilege of introducing to you tonight's speaker. Um, most of you probably know her um, already, Liz Orsted. Um, but before I do that, I do want to say one thing. These bookmarks that you may have gotten as you came in, if you didn't get one, you should pick it up on the way out because Becky made them, and um, they're really nice. They're... Revelation is what we've been going through this quarter so far. And it really has a bunch of stained glass pictures that Becky did. Shout out. Nice work, Becky Riggers. Um, and it's a bunch of symbols, images of what John sees from the book of Revelation. And on the back, we kind of broke down what those images symbolize, what they stand for. So you can put it in, in Revelation in your Bible so you can go through it and remember. Um, what is it that the, you know, the seven eyes or the seven horns, what, what does that have to do with anything? So it's a handy reference for where we've been all so far in the book of Revelation and where we're going. Um, so tonight we get to hear from Liz Orsted. And Liz graduated from UW last spring in international studies. Yeah? In the Jackson School in international studies. Very exciting. Um, and she is from close by. She's from the east side from Belle- Bellevue Christian High School. And um, I have had the privilege of knowing Liz since she was a freshman at UW. And um, she is probably one of my favorite people to spend time with. So over the course of the time that I've got to know her, these years I've been able to see the characteristics, some of the characteristics that Liz has that makes her such a fun person to be around. Um, And so I came up just a short little acrostic to share with you about Liz Mostly because it's her name's short, so I thought it'd be easy. Um, so, the first letter is L, and uh, when I think of Liz, I think of love because um, there I have know very few people that love as well as Liz loves. Whenever you spend time with her, you will feel loved because she genuinely loves you, and I'm excited for her to share with you tonight. So you can see that as well. And the I is for intentional. She's also very intentional. Liz is probably one of the most authentic people that I know because she's very intentional about being who she is when she spends time with you. As, a, as staff people, we love to spend time with students, but sometimes there are certain students that, we're gonna, that we spend time with because we want to feel good about ourselves. And for me, that was Liz. Every time we got together every week, we'd be like, yes, I'm spending time with Liz um, because she's just an incredible person to spend time with. And then Z, when I thought of Z, I immediately thought of Zoolander, which is a movie that makes me laugh. And when I think about laughter, I think about joy. And when I think about joy, I think about Liz Orsted. Yes. So she um, loves unbelievably, and she loves Jesus unbelievably. So I'm really excited for her to share with you tonight. So please welcome Liz Orsted. Well, Z is for Zoolander, people. That's great. Um, so, like Jenny said, my name is Liz, and I'm indeed an intern here at the Inn. Um, and I wanted to start by just saying that I'm thrilled that I get to be here with you guys in this space tonight. Um, and I love that you guys came out in the snow and all the elements to come to be in the Inn tonight. And the staff 
we've just been so excited for this in because we knew it was going to be a little, dif- a little different and a little bit cozier, but um, we're really, really excited that you guys are all here. So to begin, I wanted to address the question that Janie had you guys talk about before I got up here. And what was your favorite Christmas decoration? Um, and every fiber of my being says that it is not okay to talk about the Christmas spirit before Thanksgiving, but we're doing it anyway. And I know by saying that, that half of you are like totally on board and half of you just want to walk out right now. So that's okay. Um, I'm going to kind of bridge the gap and share with you one of my favorite Christmas dec- decorations from growing up. Um, my lovely mother is here and she sent me a picture of it this week. She went home and took a picture. Um, and it is a picture of some characters in a nativity scene. <laughs> Um, that my older brother made, probably when he was in Sunday school, when he was really young. Um, and if you're wondering why they look like they're made of toilet paper rolls, it's because they are. <laughs> and um, I've been trying all week to figure out who these people are. I'm pretty sure the guy on the end is a magi, one of the kings. I think those, I don't know, are they shepherds? I don't know. I think that guy with the beard is Joseph. Um, and I'm pretty sure the one on the end has to be Mary because of her insane eyelashes. I don't know who else in the story that could possibly be. So um, I show you this nativity scene that I grew up with because I wanted to give you an idea of what we're going to be looking at in the text tonight. We're looking at Revelation 12. Um, and as you know, we've been doing a series this fall on the whole book of Revelation. But tonight, um, we're going to switch gears a little bit. And in preparation for Christmas, we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus um, and the nativity. So... Revelation 12, you guys, at its heart, is a nativity scene. I want to hear that from right off the bat. In this part of his vision, John is recounting the entrance of the ultimate game changer, Jesus. His vision captures the idea that Jesus' birth means a completely different reality for all of creation, including your life and mine. Um, and remember that in, in, this, in re- this chapter of Revelation, Revelation 12, we're going to see a bunch of different characters that come out. And remember that in all of Revelation, all we're seeing here is reruns. There are no new characters um, coming out in this book that we haven't already seen in the whole of Scripture. Um, and ne- next week, Ryan is going to talk about um, this character of evil, Satan, who um, is kind of threatened by the birth of Jesus in a lot of ways. Um, And the week after that, Janie is going to talk about the baby born on Christmas, Jesus. But tonight, we're going to focus on just one character from this scene, and it's the woman that we see in Revelation 12. So, as we read, I have another little assignment for you. I want you to kind of close your eyes while the scripture is being read, and I want you to think about which of these characters grabs your attention the most. But before we do that, I'm going to pray um, for our time together and just getting getting into the word. God, I'm, I'm overwhelmed knowing how much you love each person in this room. And um, God, I pray that the words that might stick in people's hearts are words that your spirit brings to them through whatever is set up here tonight, God. Um, I pray that they would walk away from this place with a greater sense of knowing your presence with them, um, a deeper sense of knowing that they are unconditionally loved by you, um, And I just pray that everything that comes out of my mouth tonight would be something that glorifies you and tells the truth about who you are. Uh, Thank you so much that you are alive and you are well in our lives, God. And um, pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. 
an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then, from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So, so let's just say it's the woman who grabs your attention the most. Um, if you're trouble, having some trouble figuring out who she represents, uh, join the club. I'm right there. I was right there with you reading the scripture. And the reason you're having some difficulty figuring out who she is is because she is a symbol pointing to a much larger reality beyond herself. First, this woman represents the nation of Israel. This, Israel was the people group that God first called to be in a relationship with himself. And through Israel, God's plan was to bless the entire world. And secondly, this woman represents Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Mary was a part of this remnant of Israel that was waiting and just in desperation for the Messiah to come. Um, And then the third thing that this woman represents is the Christian church. And the church is this community of people that worship and follow Jesus after his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So like I said, there's a really good reason that you're probably having trouble pinpointing who this woman is. And some believe that John's intention for describing her in this crazy way is to show that she is trying, he wants to personify God's ideal community of God's people through, throughout history. So first, God's community of people through the Jewish, the Jewish people. Then God's community through Mary, who's part of this remnant waiting for Jesus. And then in the Christian church, which you and I are a part of today. So, even if we don't look at the other characters in the story, the, the red dragon you heard about and, um, and Jesus, the, the baby born, we have multiple entree choices on the menu for tonight when it comes to what we're going to explore. And so since we can't, I, sorry, I talk about food a lot. This is why I use this analogy. And Ryan Church gave me this analogy when he was talking about it. And, um, and instead of trying to digest all of them at once, we're just going to focus on one. And that way we can really focus on the riches of truth and hope that it will yield for our lives. So tonight, in preparation for Advent and the coming of Jesus at Christmas, we're going to focus on the woman as Mary, the mother of Jesus. So, okay, I did not forget about the assignment I gave you. And I'm wondering who grabbed your attention the most in this passage. And really a better question than that is who didn't grab your attention? Because there's a beast that has seven heads and ten horns, and there's a woman that's like, wearing the sun. So it's like sensory overload at its best. Um, 
And if I'm honest, I kind of wanted to skip over the woman and the dragon because I'm like, this is overwhelming. This is too much. I can't handle what these probably all represent. And so, and I'm pretty sure that this baby that's born, pretty sure that he's Jesus. And I'm pretty sure that he's the one that deserves all my attention, right? And I want to encourage you that if you are kind of thinking along those lines, I think that we're at least partially on the right track. Because without this male child being born, the other characters in this scene don't matter. In fact, you'll notice that the only character in this scene that is not a symbol pointing to a larger reality is the child, Jesus. The woman in the the story represents the ideal community of God's people, like I was talking about before. And the red dragon represents evil and darkness in our world. But this child is not a symbol at all. This is Jesus, and he's a person. He doesn't represent some larger reality beyond himself because he is the largest and most significant reality of all. So, if you're jumping at the chance to learn more about this child, then I think you're in exactly the right frame of mind when you're reading Revelation 12. But I also want to caution you that I think it would be a huge mistake if we were going to skip over these more complicated characters because they are made significant Because this child was born. Tonight we're not going to unpack everything that this woman represents. But we will shed light on the significance of the person of Mary. The mother of Jesus. And my hope is that after tonight. We will know God's love for us more deeply. Because we know better the story of Mary. So. Uh, Where we're going to begin is, I want you to think about, if you've ever been flipping through your Bible and you come across those really long lists of kind of obscure names um, that are really difficult to pronounce, um, I'm wondering how long you guys last when you're reading those passages. I don't last very long. And at the risk of sounding kind of juvenile, I get about three names in, and then I start to giggle like a seven-year-old because I'm like, some of these names are absurd. I cannot believe that these are in here. So I I grew up in a Christian school my whole life, and there was a lot of opportunities to read scripture out loud in school. So I always used to try to, like, read these names in some really dignified, like, respectful way. But at the end of the day, when I read the name Jehoshaphat, I see the word fat, and I can't get past it. So usually what happens is I'm reading and I'm like, well, I'm just going to flip the page because I'm bored and I can't pronounce the names. So I move, I blow right past it also because I'm like, I want to get to the action. I want to get to where the movement is happening. I want to get to what I think is, is the meat of these passages. But, you know, I think I've been realizing as I've been preparing for this talk that I've been making kind of a mistake when it comes to reading in some of these passages, especially when we look at the list of names in the lineage and the genealogy of Jesus. Um, So I want you to show you guys this one slide that has just this list of names. Um, All these names are, throughout Israel's history, the people leading up to when Jesus was born. Um, And lucky for you, I am not going to make anyone read these out loud. Um, So... I want to take a closer look at some of these names instead. Who are these people? What are their stories? And I think in in answering these questions, we're going to learn that the family line of Jesus that you saw up there, um, that it is full of absolute chaos. The, The family line you saw on that slide is the epitome of the dysfunctional family. So, um... We're going to begin by looking at the the start of this lineage that Matthew gives us in chapter 1 of his gospel. And we're going to look at four names that he puts at the beginning. And they're the names of four very surprising women, actually. First of all, um, we have this woman named Tamar. 
And in Genesis 38, she pretended to be a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law so that she could get him to keep the promises that he made to her. And from that encounter was born um, this person who ended up being one of the great-grandfathers of Jesus. The second woman, is, uh, who's kind of surprising, is Rahab. She, first of all, is not a Jew, though she did help the Israelites defeat Jericho. But what's surprising about her is that um, her job as an innkeeper, many scholars believe, as an innkeeper in Jericho, she was actually probably practicing prostitution. And yet she's included in this lineage of Jesus as one of Jesus' great-grandmothers. The third woman, who's kind of surprising, is another non-Jewish woman. She comes from a people group called the Moabites. And they were people that the Israelites totally shunned and put to the margins. Even still, Ruth ends up being the literal grandmother of King David and one of the great grandmothers of Jesus himself. The fourth woman is Uriah's wife. And what's interesting about this is that Matthew can't even name her directly because her situation is so scandalous. Her name is Bathsheba, and David um, killed her husband, sent him to the front lines of battle, and then slept with her. And then from their union came King Solomon, one of the great-grandfathers of Jesus. So I'm reading this, and I'm going, it's almost like Matthew took out his copy of the Old Testament and started flipping through the pages, looking for the most scandalous and morally questionable and un-Jewish people in Jesus' line. And instead of taking those names and kind of hiding them away somewhere because they were embarrassing to the Jewish people, he shamelessly wove them into his account of Jesus' ancestry. Why would Matthew include the most embarrassing moments in Jesus' genealogy on purpose? Especially as his way of introducing us to the person of Jesus. And just to give you an idea of what this might be like, this would be like me coming up to you and saying, Hey, my name is Liz. And when I was two years old, I was on a family vacation, and I ate some deer feces, and so my parents were a little bewildered, didn't know what to do, and so they took me to the vet because I didn't know what else to do. And then there was this one time that I was in high school, and I wore my sweatpants backwards for a day without knowing they were on backwards, and um, the drawstring was kind of hanging out the back. It was a little bit embarrassing. And then there was this one other time in high school when I was hanging out with one of my favorite teachers, and I had a cold, and he made me laugh, and this huge snot rocket came out of my nose. Um... And it's just really great to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, and those things are all unfortunately true about me. And if you've known me for longer than 10 minutes, like, it makes some sense. But wouldn't that be a horrendous way for me to introduce myself to you? Completely horrifying. So why, why would Matthew directly name the major screw-ups and the outcasts in Jesus' lineage as his way of kicking off his account of Jesus' life? Scholars believe that Matthew made this choice as a way of leaving no doubt in the reader's mind from the very beginning that the gospel of Christ is founded on God's mercy and his grace and absolutely nothing else. These names are included to show us that the whole story of Jesus is founded on his mercy and his grace and absolutely nothing else. Including these individuals in the lineage of Jesus meant that Matthew could emphasize two things right off the bat. First, that the love of God is deep because it forgives the most horrendous of sinners, according to the world. 
Second, that the love of God is wide because it reaches out to those on the, on the racial margins of Israel and pulls them into the very center of God's loving act of redemption. Matthew could have left these names off the list. He could have easily produced a more presentable and palatable lineage of Jesus that would not completely embarrass the Jewish people. But instead, Matthew made a conscious decision to pull those on the moral and racial margins of Israel to the very center of God's loving act of redemption in history. And because he did, we have no choice but to acknowledge from the very beginning that before we know a single thing about the life of Jesus, we need to know that nobody is out of bounds. Nobody is so far out of bounds that they are exempt from the love of God. And what this means is that you, sitting here tonight, you cannot be outside the realm of God's love for you. It's absolutely impossible. And I know that there's at least one part of my life that I've come really close to saying is out of bounds of God's healing power. There's this part of my life that I look at, I, I look at it and I say, God, I don't, I don't really see you here. I, I do not see the ways that you're working. I can't see them. And... If I'm honest, I store that part of me, these things in my life, and I store them in this box that I've called things God can't or won't redeem. I sort of keep them hidden away, and I leave them out of my prayers sometimes because I'm so sick of asking for healing. And I I guess I have a question for you right now. Um, What moments or struggles or doubts or sins would you leave out of the genealogy of your own life? What are the parts of your own life and your own story that you push to the margins believing that God can't reach them? What are the events in your life that you look at and say, you know, I don't think God can redeem this. What are the parts of your life that you say, this sin that I have is simply too big and too horrendous for God to ever love me the same way again? What parts of your life do you say, you know what, I have struggled with this one thing for so long that I see no way that God is going to come in and heal me and give me freedom. What are the parts of your life that you store in the things God can't or won't redeem box? What are they? Call them to mind. I mean, one of our staff meetings earlier in the year, we were sharing with each other the places where it's really hard to hang on to God's promises. And um, some of you might know the very lovely Amber Sand. She is one of the other interns here at the inn. And she's always saying that she's not good with words, but I'm quoting her in a sermon, so figure it out. Um, And she, she made this comment that has stuck with me for months now. She was talking about how, for her, it is so much easier to look at other people's lives and to hang on to God's promises for other people, and yet she has such difficulty hanging on to those things for herself, those promises that God has given her. And I would say that that's kind of true when we look at our lives as a whole and look at the struggles we have in our lives. I really believe that everyone has that one thing in their life, that one place of doubt, that one habitual sin, that one addiction, that one relationship, that one place of woundedness, that one place of confusion, that one place of chaos and dysfunction that we have somehow come to believe is outside the realm of God's redemptive and healing power. For me, that, that one thing that I keep in that box I was telling you guys about is a chronic struggle that I have with anxiety. 
I won't go into all the details um, in this talk, but I'm completely an open book if you ever have questions about it, want to approach me later, send me an email, whatever. But um, since my freshman year of college, I've dealt with these issues of, issues of emotional anxiety that at, at times have become extremely debilitating. There have been days and weeks over the past four or five years that I have felt my thoughts completely consumed by anxiety. And last year, I actually went to counseling for a period of time because I was so I was so at a loss for what to do that I was like, I need to get some help. I want to face this issue directly. I took a break for a while, and then actually in the last few weeks, I've gone back because <laughs> I'm still struggling with this issue that's been around for me for a very long time. And I look at my journals from college. I look at my journals from this time when I've been struggling with this, and I see that I've been asking God for the same thing over and over again. I've been asking him... God, could you make this disappear? You are God. You are a, a, a supposedly a, like all-powerful. Could, could you just make this go away? And after having a long period of time of feeling like that question doesn't really get answered by him, that thing has slowly crept into that box that I have. The things that I believe God won't or that he can't redeem. But you guys, there's hope for us in this scandalous and messy genealogy of Jesus. The hope is that there's no event in our lives, there's no struggle, there's no area of doubt that lies outside the reach of God's redemptive power. It's as if Matthew wanted us to have no possible way to know anything about Jesus' life before we can acknowledge the deepest depths and the widest expanses of God's love for us. In this genealogy, Matthew is giving us an incredible invitation. He's saying, you guys, bring out your dirtiest laundry and lay it on the floor in front of God. And let him look you in the face and let him look your struggles in the face and let him say to you, my child, I am Lord over this too. Your destructive habits, your confusion, your unspeakable sins, your doubts, your difficulties, please bring them to me. I want to show you that they don't stand a chance in hindering my redemptive power and my grace in your life. I will always have the last word in your story. So now we're going to move to another part of Matthew that, again, to be honest, I usually skim over it because I've heard it so many times. Um, And we're going to learn about this part of the nativity scene where Jesus was conceived inside of Mary, who was a virgin, by the Holy Spirit. So... Voice of the end, take it away. Be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with the child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. 
But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. So, I've grown up in the church. I've heard those words read at every single Christmas Eve service I have ever been to. But I don't think I've ever stopped to seriously ask the question, why it matters that Jesus was born of a virgin. But before we ask, ask that important question of why, we need to first ask, how can we, as Christians, put our weight down on something that sounds as crazy as the virgin birth? But instead of hearing my rather subpar attempt at answering that question, we're having um, Dwayne Morris, who teaches a series of apologetics courses here at the end, come up to kind of give you guys some ideas about how we can put our weight down as followers of Jesus in this reality of the virgin birth. So, stop covering up my notes. Um, <laughs> so, Dwayne, how... Sorry, that probably just totally threw you off. No. It's okay. Um, Dwayne, even as a Christian, how, how can we possibly believe something as crazy and ridiculous and trippy as the virgin birth? How do we do it? All right. Well, <laughs> well, I'm excited to get to share with you a few thoughts on that. And my, as you can see, my task is to share some thoughts about the virgin birth, which may be the most ridiculed belief in all of Christianity. Okay, so... Um, you know, we, we encounter atheists, and you may have may have heard some of these things, but atheists love the fact that Christians believe this. And they will point out that one of the, the big problems with religion is that it, being religious requires you to believe all sorts of things that can't possibly be true. And skeptics will say things like, how could you, how could you believe something as ridiculous as the virgin birth? How could you consider yourself an intelligent human being. <laughs> and, this, and there's a number of things I might refer to, but this gets the most reference of, of any other belief, especially within Christianity. And when it comes to think of, thinking about difficult questions like this, uh, I think it's helpful to ask some, some other questions to try to work that out. And the key question in this case is, well, what if, it, what if Jesus was not born of a virgin? What would that mean if that was not the case? And if you think about this at all, you can see that it would mean that he was born through normal procreation. It would also mean that he was just a man. And then, therefore, he's no different than you and me. And perhaps, perhaps he's special, he's some kind of prophet, but he's just a human like the rest of us. And then you notice, if he's just a man, then he can't do anything about our sin. Because why? Well, because he's a sinner too. And most importantly, then you start to see, well, he certainly isn't God. And then this leads us into the, a bigger question, and I think it's, in fact, the primary question. And it's, was Jesus God or not? And it's the answer to this question that's going to clarify this whole business about whether or not someone was virgin-born. And it, it's going to give us a foundation for the belief altogether. And we, we say, well, okay, so what if, what if he was not God? What if Jesus was not God? Well, then obviously he's not born of a virgin. His birth was normal, and he was created just like, just like we were. And, of course, he didn't die for us. Okay, on the other hand, what, what if he was God? Well, then he wasn't just a man. And he, then he must not have been born in the normal way. There's something different about how he's even entered the world. And at the heart of the virgin birth is this concept that Jesus was not, he was not conceived in the normal way. And notice this, it's because he already existed. 
He didn't come into existence when he was born. God didn't mate with a virgin and impregnate her and create a new God. That didn't happen. Okay. It's the virgin birth is the eternal God who already exists entering the world through a woman who is still a virgin. That's what it amounts to. And this exemplifies God becoming man rather than God being created. And what, so what's happened is he chose to enter the world in a way that is consistent with being God, but also in a way that can completely connect with us. Did you catch that? I want to say that again. Say he again. chose to enter the world in a way that is consistent with being God, miraculous, but also in a way that at the same time allows him to completely connect with us. How? As one of us. But the primary question here is then whether or not he was truly God. And it can be as simple as this. If, he's, if Jesus is God, then he's, if Jesus is not God, then he's not born of a virgin. Because then what would we have? We'd have a virgin birth just happening all by itself, and yes, that would be ridiculous to believe. But if he was God, then we have a supernatural entry into the world through a virgin. And this makes sense, if he's God. So what I'm getting at is that, of course, it would make no sense to believe in a virgin birth of Jesus if you, if you don't believe that Jesus is God. And this is the assumption of many skeptics. But it's, it's only because I've concluded that Jesus is truly God first that then I can intelligently, intelligently put my confidence in the reality of the virgin birth. Only because I already concluded he's God, and therefore I can, I can trust in that reality. And it makes sense. Now, of course, this means there's a lot more to get into in, in trying to you know, sort through the issues. But uh, when, it, you know, when it comes to those other questions of whether Jesus is actually God, can the Bible be trusted, you know, those are the, the key questions we address when we get into apologetics and we, we look at the evidence for these primary claims. But that's, uh, that's uh, stuff we'll get, we get into at other times. But uh, I'll give it back to Liz because she's a lot, a lot of fun to listen to. So, well, thanks, Wayne, yeah. for doing that for us. And just a, just a shout-out. Yeah, I got a round of applause. That's good. Good job. Um, just a shout out that if, you, if you're kind of wondering about some of these bigger questions that Dwayne was raising about how do I trust that Jesus was actually God or, or questions like that, um, he's going to be in the back after the end of the apologetics table. Um, and he's actually going to be offering a series of courses this winter quarter. So go check that out and uh, chat with him a little bit and figure out what's going on. Um, but let's um, now that now that we have our, our footing a little bit, we've gotten some traction on how we can actually believe as Christians that the virgin birth isn't completely made up. Um, let's get back to the first question that I asked. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that, that Jesus was born of a virgin? To be honest, I've never seriously asked that question, like I said earlier. But it would be ignorant of me and ultimately unfaithful to the text of Matthew 1 not to ask the question why it's significant that God would bring about the birth of Jesus in this particular way. What you'll notice from the passage that we read in uh, Matthew 18, uh, 1, 18-25, is that the Holy Spirit is mentioned twice in the passage. Each time the Holy Spirit is mentioned, um, and it's identified as the source of Jesus in the womb of Mary. It's the Holy Spirit that makes Jesus alive and a, a, human, a human life inside of Mary. It's not by human strength 
or human work that Jesus has conceived in Mary. It is by his own initiative that God takes on flesh and blood and moves into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson, the writer of the message, puts it. God made himself fully available in human relationship without a single human being lifting a finger. And let's think for a minute about this waiting period for the Messiah and what it was like for Israel to just wait. When was the last time you read the Old Testament? You'll notice that when you're reading it, this waiting period is absolutely chaotic. It's ugly. And it's really horrific at moments. And what is God doing in this time when Israel is just groaning and waiting for their salvation to come through the Messiah? What we saw in that lineage of Jesus is that even during those times throughout Israel's history where God seemed most distant and his promises most unreal, that is when, in fact, God was putting the pieces back together again. He was born when the lineage of Jesus... Um, had fallen into obscurity. The, Jew, the, the Jews were living in a very harsh Roman occupation. And most of all, he was born without Israel doing a thing to bring it about. He was a sprout of new life coming out of the ground that Israel had already called dead. Um, two years ago, I spent uh, eight weeks in Bethlehem, Palestine on world deputation. And to be honest with you, when I think of a time that God seemed the most distant to me, um, my, my mind immediately goes to that summer. For most of the year prior, I had felt extremely far away from God after a relationship that I'd been in kind of ended in a complete mess. And um, I told myself that going on this trip would finally break the dry spell between me and God. For crying out loud, I was, I was going to where Jesus was born. So I was like, if nothing, if this doesn't do it, then nothing will. <laughs> and this was my chance, I thought, for, to really find God again without any distractions. But my experience in many ways proved to be the opposite. In many ways, I felt that I was failing to live into this mission trip service mentality I started to feel completely unworthy for that reason of, of serving at this youth center where I was working in a village right outside Bethlehem. And I just, I found myself with the same kinds of distractions that I'd tried to run, that I'd tried to run away from at home. Um, and I mean, talk about irony. I, you guys, I literally lived three blocks from the Nativity Church when I was in Bethlehem. And there were times when I would go and just in, in this hunger to connect with God again, I would sit almost directly above the place where people believe Jesus was born, and I still couldn't feel like I was connecting to him. It felt absolutely insane. How could I possibly feel so far away from God in a place where he actually walked on earth? Anyway, on, on my bus rides to work, um, to work at... Um, in this village right outside Bethlehem with these Palestinian youth, um, I had all these long conversations with God about my feelings of failure. I felt so strongly that I had completely screwed up any opportunity to experience God or his love for me. And I, on these hour-long bus rides, I would just give God these lists of all the things that I thought I was putting between myself and him. And about a week after I got home from deputation, I remember sitting in my backyard in Bellevue, having one of these similar conversations with God about 
how I hadn't fixed my relationship with him while I was on this mission trip. And then in the middle of this conversation, I suddenly had this new thought. And my thought was, God, is the problem that I'm putting all these things between us? Or is the problem that I just can't receive your love? And I I said that thing out loud to God, and immediately I just started weeping. And I'm not one of those people who frequently has, like, audible conversations with God, but this was, this was one of those times when I felt like God was just looking at me in the face. Jesus was looking at me and smiling and just saying, Liz, do you know that I've always wanted for you to get this about me? That you don't have to do anything to earn my love or affection for you? God didn't need me to move all my junk out of the way before he loved me. He was already loving me. All I needed to do was receive this love that he was already extending. And in this story, this is where I discovered why it matters that Mary gave birth to Jesus as a virgin. And if you've tuned out for the last 10 minutes, tune back in for this. The whole point of the virgin birth is that it was God's choice to enter the world through the... I just lost my place. I'm really sorry. Okay, the whole point of the virgin birth is that it was God's choice to enter the world through Mary and not to do it through human work or human will. The coming of the Messiah was about what God did, not about what people did. And the good news in that for us is that we don't need to try harder to get God to come near us. We don't need to try to beckon him to our sides. We don't need to try harder to get his attention We don't need to perform better so that he will come to our rescue. We don't need to get our ducks in a row so that he'll enter into relationship with us. And I've got news for you. Reading our Bibles more and praying more and going to church more and sinning less will not bring God's love to us more. He, God, loved us first. He loved us in all of our mess and chaos before we even could have a thought about our response to that love. And there's not a thing that we have done by our human strength to persuade him or to coax him or to trick him into loving us that way. So the next time that you look at that genealogy in the beginning of Matthew, let it have a new meaning to you. Remind yourself that it means that there is absolutely no part of your life and your story that is outside the realm of God's redemption. And when you sit in your Christmas service over winter break and you hear someone up front talking about the virgin birth, remember this. God is not a goal to be achieved. He is a person to be received by you. Stop your constant striving and just let him love you. Receive his love, even when the voice of your mess is telling you that it is beyond the redemption of your God. Because nothing is beyond his reach. Please pray with me. Father, you are so good to us. And you are alive. And you came to be with us before we could even think about responding to you. And I pray for each of these students as they're thinking about the places in their life that they think are outside of the realm of your love, I pray that you would blow apart whatever box we, they, have put you in. And I pray that you would break through with your incredible love for them and that this Christmas that they would remember that 
It's you that love them first and that um, their mess is not outside of your control. Thank you so much for who you are, God. And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.